multilateral international development, multilateral institutions, and international economic energy and environmental policy will come to order. I want to thank the ranking member. I've really enjoyed working with you on this and other issues, uh, Senator Merkley. Uh, grateful for our bipartisan cooperation, uh, and um, thanks for your partnership on this hearing. Together, we decided to title today's hearing, The Four Famines, Root Causes and a Multilateral Action Plan. We chose this title very deliberately. We certainly want to receive an update regarding the humanitarian crises in Nigeria, Somalia, Sudan, and Yemen. We want to have as clear of an understanding as possible of what is really happening in each of these four countries, but receiving an update and attaining a better understanding of these crises is frankly not enough. There are plenty of meetings, conferences, dialogue, hearings in this town that can provide such an update. Based on an understanding of the root causes, I, for one, am most interested in identifying, in identifying and catalyzing additional specific actions that our government, other governments, NGOs, and multilateral institutions can take, actions they can take without delay to help prevent millions from dying of starvation in these four countries. Now, before I preview the witnesses and participants joining us today, I'd like to briefly comment on these posters you see around the room. These are from the four famine countries. We hear the statistics regarding these crises, and sometimes we can fall into a dispassionate clinical or intellectual discussion, lacking a sense of urgency and forgetting we're talking about real men, real women, real children who are in dire need of our help. I realize these pictures may be disturbing to some. They're certainly deeply troubling to me. But I think it's important to have these posters here today because they remind us we're talking about real people who need urgent help. Can you imagine how you'd feel if your mother, your father, your sister, brother were one of these children? Today we have an impressive group of leaders and experts joining us to help identify additional steps we can take to help. Today's hearing will be divided into three panels. The first panelist is Mr. Matthew Nims, the Acting Director of the Office of Food for Peace at the United States Agency for International Development. Mr. Nims, thanks so much for joining us here today. We look forward to your testimony. As a quick preview, the second panel will consist of two distinguished leaders from multilateral entities that play an indispensable role in alleviating suffering in these and other humanitarian crises. They will include the Honorable David Beasley, Executive Director of the World Food Program, and Mr. Justin Forsythe, Deputy Executive Director for Partnerships at the United Nations Children's Fund. In our third and final panel, we'll be joined by three individuals. Mr. Dominic Stillhart, the Director of Operations for the International Committee of the Red Cross. Dr. Deepmala Mala, South Sudan Director for Mercy Corps. And the Honorable Eric Schwartz, President of Refugees International. Given this extraordinary group of leaders and experts with real-world experience, I'm, of course, eager to get started. But before we do so... I'd like to offer a few brief comments to frame our hearing today. Today, the world confronts what many view as the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. 
The numbers are absolutely staggering. As Executive Director Beasley says in his prepared statement, about 20 million people are at risk of severe hunger or starvation in the four countries, with not nearly 6 million children in these countries malnourished. 1.4 million people, like the children depicted on these posters, are in severe condition. What makes these numbers and these images around the room especially heartbreaking is the fact that these four crises, to varying degrees, are man-made. They're preventable, exacerbated by armed conflict and deliberate restrictions on humanitarian access. Today in these countries, we're seeing attacks on humanitarian personnel and insufficient global responses to the funding needs for these crises. We're also seeing far too many man-made impediments to the delivery of humanitarian assistance. Now, the international community must speak with one clear and unambiguous voice. Combatants must end attacks on humanitarian personnel and facilities. Governments should fully fulfill their moral obligations to help financially. And countries should stop using food and medicine as weapons, weapons of war to gain political advantage or leverage. Deliberately attacking humanitarian personnel and facilities and impeding humanitarian relief to areas not under a combatant's control are clear violations of customary international law. They are morally reprehensible, and they must stop. That, that is why I introduced bipartisan Senate Resolution 114 with Senator Cardin back in April. This resolution called for an urgent and comprehensive international diplomatic effort to address man-made obstacles in Nigeria, Somalia, South Sudan, and Yemen that are preventing humanitarian aid from being delivered to millions of people who desperately need it. I'm pleased that the Senate Foreign Relations Committee passed a version of this resolution, and I'm most hopeful that the full Senate will pass it soon. I hope this hearing will give each of us a clearer idea of what can and what must be specifically done to help those at risk of starvation in each of these four countries. So with those thoughts in mind, I'd now like to call on Ranking Member Merkley for his opening remarks. Senator Merkley. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and, and particularly for your, your deep, genuine, persistent interest and engagement on such an important issue. And we certainly are deeply pleased to have six such incredible international experts to give us insight on the challenges that we face. Eradicating hunger, malnutrition is a great challenge, an appalling number Almost 800 million people across the world do not have enough food to eat every day. And more than 20 million people face starvation in the four countries we are focusing on, Nigeria, Somalia, South Sudan, and Yemen. Taken individually, the numbers are staggering. And taken together, it's heartbreaking. In these four countries, so many children, severely acutely malnourished. It is not just a moral outrage, 
it is a, a disaster for those alive today and all those who would build a country for the future. Severe malnutrition in the first five years of lives can stunt both the brain and the physical development, creating long-term disruptions in human capital. It's no wonder then that international aid officials say they are facing one of the most severe humanitarian disasters since World War II. While each country and situation is unique, each and every one of these famines has man-made contributions. It is therefore essential that the hearing today address not only the root causes that drive the suffering, but also the multilateral actions the international community can take to address it. In each of these countries, some combination of weak governance coupled with unprecedented drought and conflict have brought famine-like conditions. Conflict severely restricts the delivery of food aid, whether it is the fight against extremist groups in Nigeria and Somalia, or civil conflicts in South Sudan and Yemen. The effect is the same. Conflict prevents the delivery of food assistance at the scale necessary to meet the need, especially if the warring parties attempt to use starvation as a weapon. And I think the chairman spoke directly and powerfully to that issue. Climate disruption also plays a role. Severe drought in Somalia is a key driver. Beyond Somalia, climate disruption is contributing to droughts and food shortages that are spurring refugee movement and stressing weak governments. As our planet continues to warm, the potential for new famines only gets worse. And famine is not just about food, it's about water. Sometimes it is the lack of clean water and proper hygiene that create deadly scenarios where diseases like cholera spread. The problem gets even worse in refugee camps. Cholera is on the rise in East Africa with thousands of cases in Somalia and South Sudan in recent years. Over the long term, it is critically important to address the conflicts and climate disruption that are driving famine and will continue to do so. And in the near term, it's imperative that we do everything possible to help those suffering from these four famines. The United States has been a leading provider, often the leading provider, of international disaster relief. This is something Americans should take great pride in. While I support the administration's commitment to provide $639 million in aid to these four countries, I'm concerned that the proposed sharp cuts in funding for USAID, the State Department, the United Nations, and foreign assistance more broadly will have a negative impact. I understand the administration is considered moving the Bureau of Population Refugees and migration away from the Department of State and into the Department of Homeland Security. At a time when refugees are on the rise globally, including as a result of these famines we are discussing, we should only be redoubling our efforts to support refugees and vulnerable populations by keeping refugee assistance and resettlement under the direction of the State Department's Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration. It's essential the U.S. commit American resources and lead the world's effort to address not only these existing crises, but the ones to come as well, to prepare for them, to be ready for them, to contribute to the prevention. Emergency funding is critical, but it is not enough. We also have to invest in development and diplomacy and intergovernmental cooperation. I'm especially appreciative of all the work done by organizations represented here today USAID, the World Food Program, UNICEF, the Red Cross, Refugees International, Mercy Corps, Mercy Corps, headquartered in Oregon, I'm proud to note, and all the work that they are tirelessly 
engaged in to address these issues. And I'm pleased that our USAID representative, Matthew Nims, is from the Food for Peace office, which was zeroed out in the President's budget. But earlier today, the Ag Subcommittee, in a bipartisan fashion of appropriations, made sure that this program is funded. Therefore, you'll have a job. <laughs> and an important, very important job it is. Thank you to all of our witnesses for their willingness to join with us today. Thank you for your work. Thank you for sharing your expertise. Great to have you here, Mr. Nims. Uh, your full written statement will be included in the record, so I welcome you to summarize that statement uh, in five minutes, uh, if that's possible, sir. Thank you, Chairman Young and Ranking Member Merkley, um, very much for the, uh, the invitation to come speak with you today. <clears throat> About the, just as you described in your opening statements, this unprecedented food security crisis the world is facing. We are grateful from the USAID side, from the Food for Peace side, and I think I speak from, uh, for a lot of the other members that are gonna be talking. We are very grateful um, for your continued support to the humanitarian efforts and bringing attention to the struggles of the world's most vulnerable people. I think we have all seen the headlines about the potential for famine in the four countries, about the massive levels of food insecurity globally. The USAID-funded Famine Early Warning Systems Network, or FUSENET, has indicated an unprecedented 81 million people across 45 countries will be in need of emergency food assistance this year, largely due to persistent conflict, severe drought, and economic instability. Across South Sudan, Somalia, Nigeria, and Yemen, a combined 20 million people are at risk of severe hunger or starvation. In terms of scale, or to put it in perspective, that's nearly double the populations of Indiana and Oregon combined. In Yemen in particular, the scale of food insecurity is staggering. More than 17 million people, an astounding 60% of the country's population, are food insecure, including nearly 7 million people who are unable to survive without food assistance. In responding to these emergencies, we are seeing some commonalities as conditions worsen. High malnutrition levels across these countries are very worrying. In all four countries, more than 1.4 million children are projected to face severe acute malnutrition this year. These numbers are shocking, particularly when you consider severe malnutrition in emergency contexts can threaten the very survival of children and long-term have negative effects on all aspects of individuals' health and development. In three of the countries, Somalia, South Sudan, and Yemen, cases of cholera are on the rise. The people of Yemen face the world's worst cholera outbreak with more than 332,000 suspected cases reported as of last week. In fact, I think we're closer to 350, 350,000 already. As extreme hunger weakens people's immune systems, it leaves them susceptible to deadly but largely preventable diseases like cholera. So it's critical we contain the outbreaks. The man-made nature of these crises is another common thread. In South Sudan, Nigeria, and Yemen, the food security situation is a direct consequence of prolonged conflict. In Somalia, ongoing conflict has exacerbated severe drought conditions. In all four of the countries, we call on all parties to allow safe, rapid, and unhindered access to people most in need. As you know, in South Sudan, despite our efforts in the last three years to stave off famine, famine was declared in two countries in February due to the ongoing conflict and lack of safe and sustained access. The international community responded by scaling up humanitarian activities. And in June, it was announced that famine conditions have subsided. However, overall, food security across the country has continued to deteriorate, and life-threatening hunger has spread in both scope and scale. 
an estimated six million people, more than half of South Sudan's population, now face life-threatening hunger. Nearly four million South Sudanese have been displaced from their homes and an exodus of 1.9 million South Sudanese into neighboring countries, including into conflict areas of Sudan. Definitely shows the desperation they face. I had the honor of traveling with Chairman Corker and Senator Coons to Bidi Bidi, the settlement in Uganda in April, where many South Sudanese refugees shared their harrowing stories with us and thanked us for the assistance provided by the U.S. government. I was struck by the bravery they showed in the face of such adversity. The United States, through its many partners, continues to robustly respond to these emergencies and help lead the international effort. Through your generous support, we just announced an additional $639 million in humanitarian assistance for the millions of people affected by food insecurity and violence in these countries. Our assistance includes emergency food and nutrition assistance, life-saving medical care, improved sanitation, safe drinking water, emergency shelter, protection for civilians affected by conflict, and support for hygiene and health programs to treat, the prevented and, to treat and prevent disease outbreaks. This brings the total U.S. humanitarian assistance to more than $1.8 billion for these four crises since the beginning of fiscal year 2017. Finally, as I close, I would be remiss not to acknowledge that these four crises are our areas of greatest concern, but they represent merely the spearhead of humanitarian emergencies, including ongoing crises in Syria, Iraq, and in places like Central African Republic, the, Demi the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And in particular, I would draw your attention to the worrying news coming out of Ethiopia. According to FuseNet, the situation in southern Ethiopia is deteriorating and may be catastrophic without additional intervention. This, the drought in southern Ethiopia comes as the country's north and central highland areas continue to recover from a severe drought last year that was triggered by El Nino and consecutive poor rainy seasons. We are continuing to ramp up our assistance, including resilience investments to support Ethiopia's capacity to better withstand shocks like this severe drought in the future. Thank you for your support, and I look forward to sharing more about our response to date and taking your questions. Thank you, Mr. Nims. I'm going to ask you um, a series of questions. Uh, we will have seven-minute rounds. There will be an opportunity for multiple rounds for each of the three different panels. Um, there may be some questions I ask you, Mr. Nims, uh, where uh, I'm asking you to recapitulate something you've already uh, delivered in your testimony, and that's because I think it's essential that we underscore certain point points in in, uh, in the course of this whole exercise. So with that, how would you characterize, Mr. Nims, the humanitarian situation in uh, the so-called four famines countries? So I think largely or mostly due to prolonged conflict and severe drought, you know, and, and I guess continuing economic instability, we think that those four countries you know, face credible risk of famine in 2017. So famine is, is a very serious word in, in our business. And uh, South Sudan experienced famine earlier this year, as I, as I mentioned. Um, and uh, Somalia, Nigeria, and Yemen face the threat of famine. And, and really, and again, looking at the numbers, this puts a combined 20 million people um, at risk of severe hunger or starvation. Would you overall describe this humanitarian crisis is the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. Yes. As I stated, um, our famine early warning system uh, says that right now we have an unprecedented level of need, 81 million people across 45 countries uh, in the need of emergency food security. Additionally, of the 15 major food insecurity um, operations that we have going on in the world, 13 of those can be said that are based on man-made conflict. Focusing more narrowly on Yemen. 
Would you agree that Yemen is the largest humanitarian crisis in the world right now in terms of the number of people impacted? Yes, I would. Um, right now, Yemen is facing the world's largest cholera outbreak, and as well has the largest number of, of food insecure in the world with almost 17 million people. And the, the primary driver has that definitely has been the, the conflict that broke out in March 2015. How many, uh, so you've indicated 17 million food insecure. Um, uh, how many have been infected by cholera, something reported a lot recently in the right. press? So that, that's, se- that's 17 million. Um, it does uh, recommend, that is about 60% of the population. It's an astounding number. Seven million of those um, are unable to survive without food s- assistance, as I mentioned. And right now, I think the estimates are that over 350,000 people have been um, affected with cholera. For those who may not be as familiar with the situation in Yemen or the geography there, uh, why is the port of Hodeidah? so important to helping the millions of people in Yemen at the risk of starvation? So um, the port of of Yemen is the most crucial port for Yemen right now. Um, Over 90% of of all imports comes in through that country. And why that's doubly important is the fact that Yemen is 90% dependent for its food consumption on imports. So Yemen, the the port of Hodeidah is the main hub for all of that activity. Mr. Nims, can you describe what happened to the original cranes at the port of Hodeidah? So the original cranes um, in August 2015 were were bombed in an airstrike. How has that negatively impacted humanitarian operations at Hodeidah and uh, more broadly in Yemen? So with the loss of these cranes, it definitely has impacted the discharge rate of vessels going into the port. So that has really slowed the port operations overall. And that has had an impact definitely on the humanitarian side as well as the overall commercial activity in, for all of Yemen. Were USAID funds used to purchase, as best you can tell uh, here in this setting, these mobile cranes to replace those put out of service by the Saudi-led coalition? Those look very similar to, or if not the cranes, that, that USAID did purchase through. through it wasn't uh, designed to be a trick question, <laughs> but uh, I, I appreciate your integrity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, how much of U.S. Ta- taxpayer funds were used uh, for these cranes? That was $3.9 million. Okay. They're now in the possession of the World Food Program, is that correct? Correct. I understand there was an attempt by the World Food Program to deliver those cranes to Hodata earlier this year. What happened? Why weren't they delivered? There was an attempt um, to, to do exactly that, and there had been clearances um, gained from the Emergency Humanitarian Operations Center, from this coalition of groups that, that helps to, to ensure flow goes into the port. Um, they had received clearance, um, the WFP, to, to enter those cranes into Hodaida. As they got closer to that, um, the security situation had changed in the Gulf, in the, uh, in the Red Sea, and those, um, that shipment was turned back. Are you aware of the June 27 World Food Program letter asking the Saudi government for permission to deliver the cranes? I am aware of that letter, yes. Do you support the World Food Program's request to have the four USAID-funded cranes delivered to Hodeidah? Yes, delivery of the cranes um, would have a, a definite impact on both the humanitarian situation as far as getting throughput through the port of Hodeidah more quickly, as well as having a, a really good impact on the commercial activity overall in, 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 in Yemen. And um, 
I, I guess. Uh, apologies for the recapitulation here. So what are the negative humanitarian consequences of not having those cranes delivered just to connect the dots? Because the cranes will help the throughput and help port operations. When we don't have the cranes, it takes longer for, port, for ships to discharge. It takes longer for regular operations of the port to continue. The cranes will greatly facilitate having this movement of goods through, through, through the port. As I stated earlier, Yemen is completely dependent upon importation by and large to address the, certain, the conditions they have as well as their overall food needs in general. Having these cranes will improve that situation. Some have suggested there's a large-scale problem with the theft of humanitarian aid at the port of Hodeida. Is there a significant problem with theft of humanitarian aid at the port of Hodeida? First off, the U.S. government and USAID, and particularly my office, you know, takes any allegations of diversion of humanitarian activities very seriously, and this is paramount in, in, in all of our operations. Um, you know this humanitarian need, as we uh, this humanitarian need, is really being held off by by our continued operations that are being crucial through the port as well as with our partners. Um, in this situation, we have taken the, um, this very seriously. We have investigated this through our partners. We've investigated this uh, to a degree on our own, and we have had no evidence of any large-scale humanitarian diversions uh, occurring at the port at all. Um, we are able to say this because of the integrity of our partners and because of the methods that they use, as well as our own methods of third-party monitoring and other systems that we employ to ensure that this food gets to where it's supposed to go. Thank you. That's what my other sources have, have indicated as well, uh, multiple other sources. Some have argued that it is too unsafe for the cranes to be delivered to Hodata. Do you share that assessment? Why would the World Food Program... Uh, I ask almost rhetorically, want to deliver the cranes there if it is so unsafe? So our, our, our very good partners, the World Food Program, food, food Program, has determined that it is safe for the cranes to go in. They, along with other UN organizations and some of the NGOs that are here today, um, currently, have stayed in the, currently have staff and operations in the port, and, and um, we stand with WFP. And I would note multiple ships go there as well. Uh, that aren't affiliated with the World Food Program. So uh, thank you for your, um, your candid and concise responses to my questions. Mr. Merkley. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman and Director Nims. Just to pursue a little bit the logistical challenges, uh, what nation was behind the airstrikes that had such an impact on the ability to unload cargo? In reference to... That, um, I think I believe I said April, or no, August attack in 2015. I really do defer to my defense, Department of Defense colleagues as well as potentially Department of State to be able to answer that question. So let's, let's uh, suppose it's Saudi Arabia. Okay. In deference to not having a representative other than yourself from the U.S. government here at this moment, do you know if we have protested to the government responsible for destroying that equipment? I'm not aware of any protesting of, of the destruction of that equipment. Why not? I mean, not why are you not aware, but uh, why would we not raise that with an ally? Again, I would defer to, to my other colleagues, to the Department of Defense as well as um, Department of State on, on that issue. Do we have a, a challenge in terms of the maritime access for ships to actually get to the docks in Yemen? Yes, we, there is a challenge um, to go through 
a fairly arduous process of the Emergency um, Humanitarian Operations Committee does take time and it does complicate um, um, regular flow of goods through, through that area. Have Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, whose navies control access, been partners in allowing access or have they been difficult? They are definitely members of, of this, uh, this group of the Emergency Humanitarian Operations Committee and, and I think that the, the bureaucratic nature alone has caused severe delays and I think our partners would be better placed to answer this question but I would believe that there would be other delays a, a, as well. And it, was that a diplomatic way of, of saying that we, we could use better partnership from those two nations? I think a great way to answer that question, sir, then um, thank you for that question, would be to say in all of these situations, whether it be Yemen or other parts around the world, we can use better cooperation from those host countries as well as countries affected in the crisis. And I think that this is most definitely true in Yemen and in other places. The reason I'm asking this is because the United States is in a position to weigh in diplomatically to try to make the partnership work better to deliver aid. And I'm really trying to get a sense of, of whether you believe that we have the ability and determination to do so. I believe that, that the humanitarian side of USAID has put forward consistent efforts and consistent um, information about some of the impediments that we are finding that our partners face every day. Okay, let me shift gears here. Uh, during the, the, conti the uh, continuing resolution, the funding, uh, we worked bipartisan way to provide about a 900 million more dollars to address famines. And I th I'm not sure if all of it was directed to these four nations, but the large majority. Uh, how are we doing in terms of delivery of that aid? Because I, often when aid is not delivered quickly, the impact is far worse. In other words, speed is of the essence. How are we doing? Thank you for that, that, that question, Senator. So. I like um, that question better than the previous questions. <laughs> Something I can talk to. Uh, definitely. Um, we, first of all, from a profound sense from both our teams in the field as, as some of the NGOs and, and the international organizations here, uh, another you know, vote of thanks uh, for that incredible level of resources that have come, come our way. Um, and I can say that even before that announcement, um, USAID Food for Peace has been programming funds even before the, the announcement uh, of the additional funding. Um, and, and as I said in my testimony, we are close to now 1.8 billion for the US government that has been put forward um, for these crises. Um, from USAID alone, 1.5 billion has been put in just those four countries. Um, the 990 million that, that you referenced was apportioned um, to uh, food for Peace um, in June, on June 20th. Um, the President's, or let's see, this administration's announcement uh, in, I think on the, the, the margins of the G20 talked about a $639 million for the four, uh, you know, for the, for the four countries. Of that amount, over $330 million was from USAID Food for Peace. And that amount was um, part of the 990. We can trace it back to then as far as it's going. And our office is on track, we think, to be able to, to obligate in a, in a very you know, uh, responsible way the remaining balance of that 990 before the end of this fiscal year. Does that aid have to, in, does the, the, for those four famine countries, is that aid involving making purchases in the United States and shipping it overseas or is a significant portion of it able to be used uh, directly to, in terms of the fastest possible path to getting nutrition on the ground where it's needed? 
So um, that will be actually a blend. Um, 300 million of the 990 was converted into Title II, which is in-kind food resources. Um, and that is in process right now uh, uh, with our partners, the World Food Program, as well as others. So that there are purchases that are happening now in the, in, the, in the U.S. At the same time, there are another remaining balance of that that has come to Food for Peace are going to be exactly that, um, local purchase, regional purchase, some, maybe vouchers and, and those types of activities directly where they're needed to ensure pipelines and, and operations continue starting now and, and going forward. Is there anything that you would like Senator Young and myself to do to help speed up that aid? I think as far as timing goes and, I, and, and as far as the U.S. government's share of these resources at this time, I think that what we are doing right now is struggling and working hard to make sure that those go out the door in a timely manner and that our partners can utilize those in the most effective way possible. And my team is working very hard to ensure that that happens and USAID is doing that. I do think that given the nature of these conflicts, during the nature of what we've just been talking about, that these will simply not end these situations at the end of this fiscal year or even in the end of this calendar year. I think continued efforts on understanding this, these conflicts and what's going on. And I think an, another part of this is a message that I think the humanitarians have been a lone voice recently talking about this, but I think that it's growing, is that we cannot humanitarian our way out of these conflicts. As we said early on, all of these, even I would say Somalia, have serious man-made elements to this. What we need is a combined U.S. and worldwide diplomatic and developmental push to really solve these conflicts. And though I am incredibly proud to be at this table talking about the efforts of both the U.S. government and the partners that are going to be talking later on, I do believe that we are straining the system to its capacity, given what's going on in the world. And I think that we need to look at these through other, through other matters as well. I so much appreciate your service, and do please feel free to follow up with us as, if we can be helpful. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you for the late push for the diplomatic surge resolution uh, that uh, <laughs> we have called for. And uh, I, too, want to thank you uh, for your testimony. This concludes the first panel. And we will now take just a few minutes to allow Executive Director Beasley and Mr. Forsyth to take their places at the table. Thank you, Senators. Thank you.
Okay, you're dealing with a Marine here, so I like to run a tight ship. So uh, why don't we, uh, there are a few minutes to get settled. I, I thank you for, uh, for your indulgence, and, and uh, we, we still have two uh, panels uh, to uh, appear before us. I'd like to welcome Executive Director Beasley and Mr. Forsyth. Once again, the Honorable David Beasley is the Executive Director of the World Food Program, and Mr. Justin Forsyth is the Deputy Executive Director for Partnerships at the United Nations Children's Fund. Based on your affiliation with the United Nations, I would note that both of you are appearing voluntarily today as a courtesy to brief the committee. We're honored to have both of you here today. Executive Director Beasley, uh, without further delay, uh, I welcome you to provide your opening statement first. Uh, Mr. Chairman and uh, Ranking Member Merkleyus, it's indeed an honor to be with you, and I uh, thank you for calling this together for what is a very important issue at a critical time in world history. And uh, thank you also for reminding everyone that we're here on a voluntary basis, and it should not be understood to be a waiver, expressed or implied, of the privileges and immunities of the United Nations and its officials under the 1946 Convention on the Privileges and Immunities of the United Nations. And we just made the lawyers happy, so let me begin. <laughs> Let me, uh, I've been on the job now for a little over 100 days, so let me touch upon what I've seen in these first 100 days because I reluctantly came into this role. I was in a point in time in my life that I didn't need a job, I didn't need a title, but the cause was so overwhelming with what the world was facing, as you said, Senator, the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. It's astounding what's happening out there. So I was very concerned that I would come into a, a UN system that would be bureaucratic, couldn't get the job done, red tape, and the US cutting back its funding. So I didn't want to take a responsibility that I couldn't achieve the objectives that anyone would want to do as an executive director in such a time as this, only to find that the World Food Program is one absolutely, as we would say, a lean, mean operating machine, it gets it done. And I have just been overwhelmed with the support around the world, but I've been absolutely horrified at what I have experienced and seen, uh, having visited already seven field visits uh, around the world, including places like Somalia, South Sudan, Uganda. I'm heading into Yemen next week. But what we've been seeing is absolutely horrendous. Just in the last year, the number of people looking for food on an average daily basis has gone from 80 million to 108 million just in the past year all because of man-made conflict, a 35% increase. Somalia, Yemen, South Sudan, Northeast Nigeria. We're dealing with terrorism, we're dealing with extremism, we're dealing with man-made conflict in other ways, and that doesn't even touch into Syria and Iraq and many other countries that were alluded to by Matt just earlier. Of, of our 13 top expenditure countries with regards to operations, Ten of them are man-made. And as Matt said earlier, 13 out of the 15, however you want to calculate the numbers. But regardless, what the World Food Program and the United Nations dealt with 30 years ago is different today. It's no longer just emergencies, tsunamis, earthquakes, and things of that nature. Today, man-made conflict. Over 80% of our funding is based upon conflict. These are difficult times. And one thing I've been saying to my friends based upon my own observation if the United States, for example, wants to spend another half a trillion dollars on military operations, cut the World Food Program. 
We're the first line of offense and defense against extremism and terrorism on the field. Whether you're talking about Somalia or Nigeria or Syria, whether you're talking about Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, other places, if mothers and fathers cannot feed their little children and they have no place to go, then they'll turn to the only thing available. And so when the World Food Program is there on behalf of the United Nations and countries like the United States, it makes a huge difference. In fact, our studies are already showing, coming out of the field, in my experience of talking with those that I have talked with on a firsthand basis just in the last couple of weeks, is that, for example, in Syria alone, and this applies to the other countries as well, before a family will leave their home country, they'll move three times within their country. And for every 1% increase in hunger, there's a 2% increase in migration. So, for example, when we feed an average family or an average person at 50 cents a day, whether it's in Yemen or whether it's in Syria, 50 cents a day. But that same person, if they were a refugee in, let's say, Germany, it goes from 50 cents a day for food costs to total humanitarian costs of 50 euros per day. And you couple that with the fact that people don't want to leave their home. They've been living there all their lives. They've generations and generations. They don't want to leave, but they'll do that only if they have to. In my experience in talking with these refugees or internally displaced people from country to country is it backs up this study because everyone that I talk to, I ask, I'll ask them how many times did you move? Why did you move? And literally in the last two weeks, in talking with refugees in Uganda moving out from South Sudan and talking with 15, 16, 17-year-olds, for example, whose mothers and fathers have been killed, macheted to death only in the last two weeks. This ongoing crisis is taking place as we sit right here. And as I've said to my friends, if we do not receive the funds that we need in the next few months, we're talking about 600,000 children dying. You've seen the numbers that have already been alluded to here today, that 5.4 million children are dangerously malnourished. 1.6 to 1.7 million are acutely, severely malnourished. The situation is as dire as it gets. And if you recall, in the Somalia uh, famine that took place in 2011 and 2012, by the time the famine was declared, half the people had died. 258,000 people died then. And the numbers that we're talking today makes that pale in comparison of the tragedies and the atrocities that we're talking about. As Matt alluded to, and you did too, Senator, 20 million people in these four countries facing famine don't know where their next meal is going to be. 10 million are in serious, serious jeopardy. We need the funds and we need access. We must have both. And I say to my friends all over the world, particularly those that are major donor countries, if you're not going to provide the funds that we need to do what we do best and we can get the job done, because I can say without a shadow of a doubt that the World Food Program, if we have the funds, we've got the expertise, we've got the experience, we've got the assets, and we can get the food to every single person out there. But we've got to have the money and we've got to have the access. These two things are critical. And if you're not going to provide the funds and the access, then stop the wars. Sustainable development goal number two that the entire world has agreed to, end world hunger by 2030. 
It was an achievable goal a couple of years ago. Hunger was being reduced all over the world. Even though the population of the world has been going up, 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 the rate of hunger has been going down, 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 down to about 800 million people. But yet, today, because of man-made conflict, greed, corruption, malfeasance in governments, the problem is only exacerbated and getting worse and worse. I do believe if we can end these conflicts, we can end world hunger. I have no doubt. With the commitment of the United States as a leader in this area and other countries that are willing to step up, I've just been shocked and so pleased and overwhelmed by the countries that are willing to stand firm with the United States and others. Germany is stepping up from what used to be $60 million a year to now over $850 million a year. The EU, up to $650 million, about $800 and some odd million this past year, $650 million this year. The UK, up to $400 million, give or take. Canada, $200 and some odd million is the value of the dollar has been hurting them. And other countries like Japan and the Scandinavian countries, the Nordic countries. And, but there are other countries that could do more. In my opinion, the Saudis, they ought to fund the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, 100% of it. It's unreasonable. And I think shameful that they're not. The GCC states ought to be stepping up more for funding their brothers and sisters and their friends in the neighborhood, Iraq, Syria. But instead, it appears that the West is bearing these burdens. Other countries can do more. I'm hopeful that China as well as Russia will. And I'm traveling to these countries, making the appeal. And just in the last two weeks, I've been to many of these countries. And I have been, as I said earlier, uh, overwhelmed and very pleased to see that countries and our great partners are stepping up, like Germany and other, other countries. And so my question that I would like to pose to leaders around the world is, if you're not going to provide the funds we need, will you provide the diplomatic power that's necessary to end these conflicts? I don't think these conflicts are that complicated in some of these places, Senator. And so anyway... It's good to be here with you. I look forward to answering any questions you have. Well, I think that's a great point to end on for uh, your opening remarks. I thank you very much. I anticipate following up on, on, on uh, that matter and others. Uh, Mr. Forsyth. Thank you very much, um, Chairman um, Young, and thank you very much, um, Senator Merkley, for the honor of being here today and the chance to um, speak to you and to build on the very um, passionate and profound comments from um, David Beasley. I wanted just to start um, with a story that actually goes back to 2011. I was a lot of, uh, I spent a lot of time in Somalia and in northern Kenya during the last famine in 2011. And I remember very distinctly standing in Dadaab refugee camp. Many of us, I think, in this room who work in the humanitarian world have been to Dadaab refugee camp, one of the biggest um, refugee camps in the world in northern Kenya, where many of the Somali refugees come into. And I remember being on the outskirts of that camp in 2011, and um, I saw a family digging a hole by the side of the road. And I stopped, and we talked to that family, and they told us their story. And they had walked four days out of Somalia, fleeing drought and conflict. Um, three of the men in their group had been killed. Another seven of them had been kidnapped by one of the armed groups. All the women had been raped. And they told the story um, about how the littlest child in their group, a girl called Hawa, only a year old, 
um, had survived all of that, that horror on, those, on that journey. But she'd arrived in the Dab camp and tragically died a day later of diarrhea, one of the biggest killers in the world of children. I remember being a few months later um, than that visit to Dab refugee camp in Mogadishu, in a camp in the middle of Mogadishu called Sigali, which is in the rubble of the centre of Mogadishu. Um, Al-Shabaab was still in Mogadishu then, um, and you could hear the firing in the distance. And I met another mother and child, and they told a very similar story. And happily, due to the expert help of aid agencies, that little girl called Nastea survived, but she was very malnourished. And I saw her again several months later, and she was much better and fully recovered. And the reason I say, tell that story is because I think through that famine in 2011, which is relevant to the four looming famines today, we learned three big lessons, which we've learned in other humanitarian situations. Firstly, actually, as he, David Beasley has said, is that we need to act early, that many children in particular die before we even declare these as humanitarian emergencies or famines. That's the first important lesson. The second lesson is that this isn't only a nutrition crisis, but a water, a sanitation, and a health crisis. And in places like northern Nigeria, but also Somalia, Yemen, and South Sudan, an education crisis um, as well, is we need an integrated response. You can't address these issues just through one intervention. The reason that children are dying from diarrhea or cholera in Yemen is because they're malnourished. The reason they're catching cholera or getting very violent forms of diarrhea is because they're malnourished. This is a vicious circle, and you need to be able to address. So this integrated approach is really important in saving those 1.4 million children's lives that are se severely acutely malnourished. And then the third point, which I think we learned very strongly in 2011, as well as acting early into scale, as well as addressing this in an integrated health and nutrition and water together, is that we really need, as we've heard from, you, from both of you um, senators, but also from the panellists today, um, about addressing the root causes. And the root causes are primarily conflict. In all of these terrible emergencies, there's conflict. I was in northern um, South Sudan not so long ago in Bentu, and I landed after a three-hour ride in a helicopter in a remote area, which is one of the areas where famine was declared, and went to a UNICEF-supported clinic and it had been completely looted. There were no beds, let alone any medicines or facilities. So the conflict is very important. But there is other factors as well. There's climate change, environmental degradation. If you ask the elders of northern Kenya sitting on the Somali border how it used to be 30 years ago, they'd say that they used to have a bad drought like this every 15 years. They're now having this every year nearly every year in, in this part of the world. So that's to do with overpopulation, it's to do with many factors, but there is also a dramatic rise in temperature which is causing a big impact um, on the food situation. So as my um, colleagues have said, I think the action we need from the international community is firstly, is the scale and speed. And I think the US have to be, have to be commended for the scale of the response, for the speed of the response, and that has saved lives. But the scale of the crisis means we need even more than we currently have, and we need to keep delivering on the ground. And then we need the diplomatic action to solve the root causes of the conflict. And we also need to be doing development work, even in emergency situations, to address some of those wider development causes of the conflict situation and of the humanitarian situation.
Thank you. Well, thank you for your insightful comments. Uh, Executive Director Beasley, based on the World Food Program's activities in Yemen, where you'll be traveling next week, do you agree with Mr. Nims regarding the importance of the port of Hodeida to humanitarian relief efforts? I try to agree with Mr. Nims on everything he says, <laughs> Senator. Can you tell us, can you tell us why, um, from your perspective and, and based on what you've been uh, hearing from your advisors, why that port is so important? Yes, sir. Ninety percent of all food for Yemen is imported. And seventy uh, percent, give or take, or if not more, of all products come in through Hodeida port. And approximately 90% of the people that we're dealing with uh, in this critical situation are in this area. So this port is absolutely essential to the well-being of the Yemeni people. Director Beasley, your staff provided this picture of a World Food Program warehouse from Yemen. It doesn't appear to be a fully uh, intact warehouse uh, based on my observation. What happened to that warehouse, to your knowledge? Uh, this warehouse was bombed in 2015, I believe. Who bombed that warehouse? Uh, to our understanding and knowledge, Saudi-led Saudi uh, forces. Director Beasley, I asked Mr. Nims about what happened with the cranes that the World Food Program tried to deliver earlier this year. Can you provide more details? Well, in the same bombing, many of the cranes that were knocked out, uh, which severely impedes and impairs the ability to deliver food on a humani for a humanitarian basis to the innocent victims and people within Yemen. And uh, the cranes, most, almost all the cranes were, were bombed and knocked out. And so uh, the United States, uh, operating through USAID, provided the funds, $3.8 or $9 million, for the World Food Program to, to buy new cranes. We purchased the cranes, we put them on the ships, and we sent them to Yemen, only to have the ships um, not allowed passage, and therefore the ships sat. Uh, so in who was it? I'm sorry to interject, sir, which is yes, sir. euphemism here in Washington for interrupt, but um, what, <laughs> who refused to allow these cranes to have passage? Well, the blockade was a uh, Saudi-led blockade. Okay, thank you. Please continue. And so the blockade uh, is still in place to this day. We still have not been able to get access to bring the cranes, which will substantially improve and increase our opportunities and abilities to be able to provide not just food, but medical supplies and other things that are necessary to provide a healthy population, which we know is a, is a, a disaster right now. So we have been making ongoing requests. Uh, I have been making ongoing requests. Our office, our office, in a variety of different ways, have been making ongoing requests uh, to the Saudis, who are in control of the airspace and the water space, so to speak. And uh, it is a disaster. So in, in just roughly 90 seconds, I heard from you that um, it was your belief that, uh, please hold that up again. that the Saudi-led coalition bombed this warehouse full of food that was supposed to be delivered to people in the conflict zone, um, uh, paid for in part by U.S. taxpayers. I also heard that uh, it was your belief that the Saudi-led coalition bombed the cranes that would offload food and medical supplies for the worst humanitarian crisis in the world to help out people in a conflict zone. 
And then after U.S.-funded cranes uh, were on a ship, courtesy of the World Food Program, it was a Saudi-led coalition that caused those cranes to turn around and not be delivered, thus exacerbating to Mr. Nim's earlier testimony uh, the humanitarian crisis uh, and and uh, are, are all those things correct? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, am I incorrect at drawing? You always know, to be careful to draw inferences here, but is there a pattern, perhaps, uh, that I'm picking up on with respect to um, uh, some of the challenges that are being experienced in Yemen and the efforts uh, to address those humanitarian challenges? Senator, we may debate all day long why this war is taking place, but we cannot debate clearly that the World Food Program and other humanitarian agencies do not have the access that they need to achieve the objectives of feeding and uh, providing the assistance needed to innocent victims of combat. Director Beasley, on June 27, the World Food Program Yemen Country Director sent a letter, this letter, to the Saudi government asking for approval to once again try to deliver the four Tadano cranes to the port of Hodeida. Without objection, I'd like to enter this letter into the record. And so it is. I think, I think it's important to read a few excerpts from this letter. In the letter, the World Food Program says that, quote, given that all five gantry cranes in Hudeda port are not operational, the mobile cranes would be critical to partially address the limited port capacity that severely impedes timely offloading of humanitarian supplies, unquote. The letter continues, quote, the cranes are expected to ease port congestion, thus allowing for more rapid delivery of humanitarian assistance into the country, unquote. The letter states that the primary purpose of the cranes would be to ensure, quote, humanitarian relief items such as food, nutrition, and medical supplies reach the Yemeni population in need, unquote. The letter continues, quote, now more than ever, as the food security situation is deteriorating and the recent cholera outbreak is spreading across the country, the humanitarian community needs your support. This again, a letter to the Saudi government in order to be able to timely deliver life-saving assistance to the most vulnerable, unquote. Director Beasley, do you stand by uh, that WFP request and the statements uh, in this letter? Senator, I certainly do, and uh, I have made a, a personal request uh, to the, the Saudi king uh, and the crown prince to personally appeal to them to allow these cranes in, number one, Number two, to do what they can to resolve this conflict. And number three, to fund the humanitarian disaster on the ground. Have you received a response yet from the Saudi government? Uh, as of this moment, I have not. I'm hopeful. And, uh, but I hope we don't receive the same response that the BBC received. Because uh, the BBC was going to be flying in with us next week into Yemen. And uh, unfortunately, no reporters are allowed to fly in with us. Because we do think it's necessary that the people around the world, particularly the donor countries like the United States and others who are funding the humanitarian crisis of this nature, they have a right to see that their taxpayer dollars are being spent wisely. I'm staring at a, an article, this courtesy of Reuters, Saudi-led coalition blocks UN aid staff flight carrying journalists to Yemen. Is this what you were alluding to? Yes, sir. I'd like to enter this article into the record without objection. Now, I recognize the cranes aren't a panacea 
to the horrible humanitarian crisis. However, permitting their delivery is a tangible, a specific step that can be taken to improve or save thousands or millions of lives by facilitating the more expeditious flow of humanitarian supplies. Director Beasley, will you inform me promptly when you receive a response from the Saudi government? I certainly will, Senator. Well, I will want to ensure the Saudis get all the public credit or shame they deserve, depending on their decision. Just a bit more, Director Beasley. I thank you for your patience uh, here. Uh, whether it is in Yemen or elsewhere, do you believe that deliberately impeding the flow of humanitarian supplies, including food or medicine, in order to gain political leverage, is morally reprehensible and worthy of universal condemnation? I think it's an abort activity in violation of not just humanitarian and international law, but it's morally uh, just a terrible thing. Yes. Um, are you referencing a, a violation of, of, of customary international humanitarian law, Rule 55, or we can, we can have the lawyers check on that if you like? Yeah, yeah. I'll let the lawyers do the details. But, All right, sure. But, Senator, we are facing many, many impediments to achieving the objectives based upon humanitarian principles. Okay. Um, let me read a passage from that law. It may have been what you're referencing. Um, customary international humanitarian law, Rule 55, says... The parties to the conflict must allow and facilitate rapid and unimpeded passage of humanitarian relief for civilians in need, which is impartial in character and conducted without any adverse distinction subject to their right of control. Now this, this Rule 55 is reinforced, as I understand it, by Article 14 of the additional Protocol 2 of the Geneva Conventions, which states that, quote, starvation of civilians as a method of combat is prohibited, unquote. I'd note that the Saudi government ratified the additional Protocol 2 to the Geneva Conventions in 2001. Mr. Merkley, I will uh, turn it over to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. It was, I believe, May 20th when President Trump met with King Salman in Saudi Arabia, and they had what were reported to be very um, uh, friendly conversations. Uh, Mr. Beasley, Director Beasley, should we be asking our president to weigh in directly with the King of Saudi Arabia to get access for aid into Yemen? Yes, sir. I am hopeful that the President of the United States and other leaders of the United States government will weigh in in every way possible so that we can receive not just the access for the cranes to be where they need to be, but also I think that the leaders of the United States and other governments ought to challenge uh, the Saudis to fund the humanitarian crisis if they're not going to resolve the conflict. Uh, Mr. Forsyth, you referred in a complimentary way that the U.S. was, was uh, moving quickly. Um, thank you for the compliment, but do you feel we could, we could do even more? Do you have suggestions for how we could be more effective, either in terms of the type of aid, the ways we're delivering it, the speed with which we're delivering it, or should we ask our president 
give you each a presidential question here. Should we ask our president to get on a conference call with key group of leaders around the world and say we need to amp up our response in a very significant way to these famines? Thank you, um, Senator. I mean, the first thing I wanted to say in reply to your question, I'll answer it directly too, but just indirectly, is that I think we shouldn't underestimate in this very serious humanitarian situation in four countries, we are making a difference. I mean, just one example, in Yemen, um, WHO and UNICEF are running 626 diarrhea treatment centers for cholera and severe diarrhea. In South Sudan, WFP and UNICEF, we've, even in the Unity State where some of the worst fighting is happening, we've done the, these rapid response missions which have reached 530,000 people, including 100,000 children. So the response, and I'm, those are just two examples, on the ground, very brave humanitarian workers, international, but a lot of them local, are doing heroic work to save people's lives and, 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 and the most vulnerable children in these very difficult situations. We'll hear from some of the NGOs who are part of that effort in a minute. So I think that would be the first point. The second point is, as we've heard, we're in a race against time to stop this emergency getting worse. And in places like Yemen, it's getting worse because cholera or suspected cholera and diarrhea is, com is complicating malnutrition and famine sit type situations. So we have to really move even quicker and even greater scale to address this before it gets even worse. And we know, as well as the 20 million, there's another 10 million people at risk who could fall into the very severe situation, which will need extra aid. So we have to move even quicker and faster. Now, I think within that context, the US has been very generous. And I think your point is very valid, which is, could the US do even more to convene some of other donors to do even better? and to do even more, including, as we say, some of the governments in the region, um, for example, in the, in the Gulf region, but also in Europe and in other parts of the world. But also, could the US really put its shoulder to the mill in terms of diplomatic efforts to deal with the root causes? And not just in Yemen, though Yemen is the worst, but also in South Sudan, um, also in Somalia, we need progress in the end, not on a diplomatic side, but in terms of dealing with some of the root causes. Uh, Malala is visiting northern Nigeria today, and she's asked the president to declare it an education emergency because what we've seen is not a, a nutrition crisis and a health crisis, but we've seen the destruction of over 3,000 schools by Boko Haram because they want to destroy education for the generation of future children. And the best response to that type of extremism is to invest more in education even in these emergency situations. So I think the U.S. leadership could be on all of those different levels, Senator. Uh, thank you. And I'm very concerned about the reports of Boko Haram also sending in suicide bombers into these settings, which is another form of absolute uh, chaos complicating every effort uh, to make things better. Recently, UNICEF released a report showing that the cases of rape and sexual violence against women have increased significantly in drought-affected areas of Somalia. Between November and March, UNICEF and partners responded to about 300 cases of rape, sexual assault, gender-related violence on average each month. In June, that tripled to 909 reported cases. Can you just, in a modest number of words, because I have one more question I want to get in before my time's up, what is the disproportionate impact of famine on women, and can the U.S. do more to better protect women from violence in these settings? 
Well, very briefly, um, so when people are displaced, women walk further to get water. They also are displaced to refugee camps. When I, I visited the only rape centre in Mogadishu, most of the women are raped as they go to the toilet or when they go and get water. So they're much more vulnerable in these humanitarian situations. Secondly, linked to David's point earlier, nearly all the women, and I've been on an Italian ship off the coast of Libya as with these migrants being picked out of the sea and rescued, nearly all the girls from West Africa and Somalia who've come through Libya have been raped, nearly every one of them. And some of them, one girl I met eight months in an underground prison in Libya, raped every day before being sold into prostitution in Italy. So the children on the move, young women on the move, even boys on the move are very vulnerable to sexual violence. I, particularly in the refugee camps, it seems like we could somehow provide more security to uh, diminish this. Very much so. And basic security, including lighting, makes a huge difference. Also having toilets near where women are. Um, run by the community. Very basic thing makes a big difference in terms of rape in refugee camps, in terms of looking at it from a gender perspective. Are we having a, are we going to another round on this or are we going to our next panel? Uh, another round. Okay, then I'll, I'll hold my, my next question to the next round. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Director Beasley, in your prepared remarks, uh, you note the World Food Program has identified 6.8 million people in Yemen who are severely food insecure and require emergency food assistance. Uh, you write that giving funding shortfalls, full emergency rations reached only 3.9 million people in June. So am I correct here, is, 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 uh, I, I do the Naval Academy math, that with more funding, the World Food Program could help almost three million more people in Yemen. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. In fact, the 3.9 million that we fed with regards to full rations, there was another 1.5 million that we fed with part rations. And so the problem is complicated by the fact that we don't have resources and we don't have access. Uh, both of those together. But if we receive the funds we need, for example, after the United States announced and the president uh, passed, you know, thank goodness the United States House and the Senate, and I've been saying to this to my friends all over the world, uh, that uh, in spite of the fact that Republicans and Democrats seem to be tearing each other apart on the, in Washington, D.C. today, but when it comes to hungry children, uh, they're together. And it's been, it's been amazing to watch the Republicans and Democrats come together and uh, helping these innocent children all over the world. And so when the United States sent a very clear message that the United States was going to continue to provide the moral leadership with regards to humanitarian assistance around the world in passing the $990 million on the Supplemental Appropriation Bill, it was an amazing message to the world that the United States leadership was not backing down. And then when the president announced the $639 million, it was a tremendous coup, uh, so to speak, to see that the United States Democrats and Republicans were standing firm. Now, having said that, we need, for Yemen alone, an additional $343 million after, and this is after the President's announcement, once we receive those funds, we still need another 350 some odd million dollars for the rest of the year for Yemen alone. So I, I'm proud we've come together around this issue uh, here, as, as you indicated, Republicans, Democrats, Congress, uh, uh, the administration, and uh, I have a measure of confidence, and we'll continue to see that those monies uh, uh, are, are received. You named a number of countries earlier uh, which you indicated should do more, Saudi Arabia notably uh, being one of them, but there were others within the GCC and beyond. 
Um, now, we've seen, uh, some have indicated, a, a pattern of some countries making bold announcements with respect to pledges, uh, and then the money is really slow to actually arrive or it never arrives. It, is, can I verify that that's been happening? Yes, sir. You can verify that. Uh, and, you know, we're not here to pick on anybody, but this is a conflict that innocent children are dying from, innocent people are suffering from. And so we ask particularly those that, that reside and live in this area, uh, in the Gulf states, Saudi, to, to please step up and fund the humanitarian free-for-all, the consequences of the conflict. And so uh, the United States has been stepping up and has done admirably so, and I think the United States now has the moral authority to demand of the other uh, nations around the world to do more. And as I said earlier, Germany, the U.K., the EU, and other countries have been stepping up, but countries, in my opinion, like the Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states, I uh, think they need to shoulder some of this burden, if not all of the burden. Well, I, I, thank you. I think it's really important in the wake of uh, flashy press conferences and, and the distribution of glossy uh, brochures around Washington, D.C., among our opinion leaders, um, that, um, that pledges are fulfilled. And if they're not fulfilled, uh, we need to shine a light on that, uh, uh, create, create some perverse incentives uh, if, if we don't... Uh, uh, ensure that feedback loop uh, is there. Mr. Forsyth, you mentioned funding shortfalls in your testimony. Perhaps there's something you'd like to add? I want to give you the opportunity, sir. I think the, the United Nations as a whole is about 40 to 45 percent um, funded properly in terms of this emergency, which allows us to do a lot of the things I mentioned before, but that is still a huge shortfall. And as I mentioned, we're in a race against time, particularly in Yemen, because of the health crisis combining with the, with, with the nutrition crisis. So we do need others to step up to the mark. What's interesting, and it's worth noting, just to add to the points that have been made, that there are some new actors beginning to do even more. For example, the World Bank. The World Bank is funding now big health and nutrition programs in Yemen, is also getting re involved in responses in other fragile states, and the U.S. is a big um, backer of the World Bank, and that's also an important part of now what the World Bank is doing in, in fragile states. But I would agree, agree with the executive director from WFP. There are some governments who need to do more. Some in Europe aren't very generous, for example. Some are generous, like Germany and the U.K., Sweden, but other European countries have a mixed performance on this. The European Union as a whole is a big donor and is, at the, uh, is in, the, in, in the forefront of this. Thank you. I've spent a disproportionate amount of time discussing the situation in Yemen. I'd, I'd, I'd like to uh, quickly move uh, on to uh, Nigeria. The World Bank estimates that the size of the Nigerian economy was over $400 billion in 2016. That made Nigeria the 26th largest economy in the world and the largest in Africa. We know Nigeria is one of the so-called four famine countries. While the international community does all it can to address the humanitarian crisis in Nigeria, it's important the Nigerian government carries its fair share of the financial burden. Director Beasley, has the World Food Program received any funding, any funding from Nigeria to help the humanitarian crisis in their own country? Senator, I met with the foreign minister of, uh, of Nigeria just a few weeks ago and made the request for that based on my opinion, 
uh, and economic analysis that Nigeria should be stepping up and funding so much of this problem. And I do believe we're going to receive some positive results, maybe not as much as we would anticipate. But I do think this is where uh, nations like the United States and others can have friendly uh, conversations with with the Nigerian leadership and stepping up because we have 1.9 million people displaced. We're feeding approximately 1.1 million people in Nigeria. And Nigeria is compounded, of course, not just by Boko Haram, but also uh, issues of climate and drought in the Northeast sector. Thank you. We'll continue to follow that situation uh, with, with you and your staff's uh, assistance. Um, just a couple of more questions, and, and, and then I will yield to Mr. Merkley for a second round. Director Beasley, in an article a few days ago, you were cited as saying the following. If a family can't feed their children after two or three weeks, they'll turn to any available resource they can, and that usually is extremism. Some may not appreciate the security implications of these humanitarian crises. What do you see as the security implications for the United States and our allies if we continue to allow the impediment of humanitarian aid and, and continue to see an insufficient global financial response? The United States is a leader in humanitarian assistance. But I've said to many of my friends in the United States, and I've said this to many countries that are substantially providing uh, major funds to the World Food Program that it is in your national security interest. Uh, what we're facing today is different than what it was 30 years ago. And the front lines where the World Food Program is, as well as other organizations, humanitarian organizations, uh, it's a difficult situation today compared to, to any other time period in world history. Uh, whether you're dealing with extremist groups or terrorist groups, when mothers and fathers and families can't feed their children in these extremist areas, and they don't have the access or the opportunity to leave, then they have no choice but to turn to what's available to them. And so when the United States provides the leadership to make certain that these families, mothers and fathers, can feed their children, they do not turn to extremism. They do not turn and yield to terrorism. And if we are not there, terrorism, extremism will proliferate, and the problems that we're facing uh, around the world will only be exacerbated and compounded. And then, of course, we're dealing with military and other operations that, call, that are very costly after the fact. Thank you, sir. Uh, my last, last question of you, uh, Mr. Beasley, uh, pertains to South Sudan. You recently visited South Sudan, neighboring Uganda. Uh, how would you describe the current situation there? And if you could specifically indicate whether you would... Uh, characterize the, the situation as another potential genocide, uh, I'd be grateful for that. Senator, I think the atrocities are occurring on a daily basis, perhaps bordering on genocide. I've been on the ground in South Sudan. I've been in the refugee operations in the bordering countries like Uganda and the settlements, and I have talked to witnesses firsthand and heard the horror stories. And it's not one isolated incident. It's over and over and over and over. And it's heartbreaking to hear these children talk about watching their mothers and their fathers being macheted to death right in front of their very own eyes. And it's my opinion that the United States and other nations of influence should bring to bear all influence and pressure they can, not just on the South Sudanese government, but all parties involved with that conflict, as well as all nations in the surrounding area that yield some degree of influence 
within that region, whether you're talking about Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, the list goes on. I think it needs to be a comprehensive approach. I think the nations need to come together and pressure all governments in that region to bring the conflict to an end. But my observation personally, the atrocities are astounding. And Senator, the, we're not talking about what happened 10 years ago, five years ago, three years ago, and two years ago. We're talking about what happens two weeks ago and ongoing. And so as we're witnessing literally 2,000, give or take, uh, Sudanese, South Sudanese uh, children, mothers and fathers are still continuing to be uh, beaten or killed and are fleeing and leaving on a daily basis that many people as we speak right here today. Thank you for your testimony. Uh, Senator Merkley, you're recognized. Director Forsyth, we, you commented some on the challenges facing women during the chaotic conditions surrounding drought and refugee situations and refugee camps. Famine locations and hunger and can also affect maternal health care, which increases the risk of complications during pregnancy and delivery, putting the health and lives of women and infants in danger. The UN Population Fund, given its mandate on reproductive health and gender-based violence, plays a key role in assisting pregnant women and new mothers amidst these famines. Our current executive branch, our Trump administration, has cut all funding to UNFPA, drastically reducing the assistance available for responding to women in these situations. For example, I understand that our, our reduction in funding will cut in half the ability of the UN Population Fund to assist women in Syria. Meanwhile, in next door Jordan, the fund has assisted 7,500 maternal births. Uh, I guess that's redundant. 7,500 births uh, without a single woman uh, dying in, in the course of that under these very difficult circumstances. What will be the impact of the United States uh, cutting these resources? Senator, you're right to say um, the impact on women um, in terms of these drought, famine, and also refugee situations is, is very stark. And what we see is that women are very vulnerable, not just to rape, as you rightly point out, but also to not having basic services avail available, to just a trained health worker, not a full nurse or midwife or doctor um, in these in these more extreme situations, which means that if they have any complication in birth, it leads to a maternal death or, an, or a child death in that situation. Um, I've seen um, in these situations, without those services, um, if you have a breech birth or anything like that, it leads to maybe both the baby and the mother um, um, dying. And we know that despite the overall pro progress in maternal mortality in the world, and it has been dramatic that... The, the area that we've made least progress with is during that first few um, hours and then the first month after a baby's born. And that's when you most need a trained health worker. And in a refugee or a drought or a refugee situation, that's when you have that least amount of support. 
So I think the support for UNFPA, the support for other UN agencies, and we work with UNFPA and UN Women, providing a lot of health support um, to women. We also work with them on things like um, female genital mutilation, early marriage, those types of issues, um, is very critical in terms of addressing women and girls' um, rights, but also them living or dying in these very dramatic um, situations. So I hope um, that we can find a way that we keep that type of life-saving support to those very important, that very important work that UNFPA and, and others do on health in these very difficult um, situations. To, to summarize, uh, thousands of women will be far better off, but also thousands of babies will enter the world on a far healthier basis if we were to restore this funding. Uh, it's hard for me to get involved directly in an issue to do with the U.S. administration, as you'll appreciate. But uh, 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 Okay, uh, I'll say, let's <laughs> do this then. I will say that's my summary of your statement. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you. Recently, UNICEF re released this report, Thirsting for a Future. And in this report, it goes through the critical role of water in the world. And uh, it, it notes page 13, for children, water is life. And on page 19, that 600 million children are projected to be living in areas with extraordinarily high water stress. Uh, by the year 20-something. 20 2040. Thank you. 2040? 20 Thank you. And it, 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 what it, it details the science behind how greater heat both reduces water in the ground, uh, water in aquifers, but also how it produces more water in the air, leading to more sudden downpours and therefore flooding, an irony, really, to have both greater drought and greater floods produced. On page 31, if I can find it quickly, hold on, just a moment more. It says, over the past 50 years, the average global temperature has increased at the fastest rate in recorded history and that the trend is continuing. And all but one of the 16 hottest years have occurred since 2000. Uh, the, um, we also had uh, a circumstance in 2015 and 2016 where each month was the single hottest month in the last 50 years. That is, May was the hottest month of all the Mays in the previous 50 years, and then June and then July. I did the math on this. To have this happen by accident for 16 months in a row uh, is less than one out of one trillion times one trillion. In other words, this is, this is not, there's nothing accidental about this. So here we're talking about trying to address the fundamentals of reducing these types of crisis situations in the future famine and violence that often spawns from scarcity, is it essential, as this UNICEF report points out, that we aggressively as an international community take on what's often called global warming, which, but which I refer to as climate disruption? 
Senator, I think you're right. There's a big connection between climate change and drought and human suffering. Whether these exact four famines are a consequence is too early to know, and most scientists would say that even though the evidence already points to that, that you will only know in future years whether these famines are a consequence of that situation. But you're right. The change in rainfall patterns, the increased evaporation, the more extreme weather, the drying up of aquifers, all of these factors are becoming extreme in all of these different places. And it's interesting if you look at northern Nigeria, northern Kenya, Somalia, but also the Sahel, Yemen, where there's um, desertification, where there's more drought, but it's also where, going to the point you made, where there's more extremism, where there's more resource ex um, scarcity, there's all more, more division. So there's a connection between all of these different issues. Now, it's not a direct connection. I mean, the major cause of these famines now is man-made conflict. And in South Sudan and other places, probably two men in South Sudan could stop the conflict if their heads were banged together and there was action that addressed some of the causes. And we should be honest about that. But the complementary factors, which then lead to scarcity, as you say, which then lead to um, people moving, that lead to some of the conflicts, for example, around um, where cattle are, are allowed to... I mean, are these cattle raids in South Sudan that complement this are to do with scarcity and resources. So there's a big connection between what's happening with the environment and some of the underlying factors in, in terms of conflict. My, my view and the view of UNICEF is that we've got to address not just the symptoms, but the causes. And the causes include environment, not just climate change, but other environmental factors like desertification. But we've also got to address issues around poverty and development, even in the midst of emergencies, if we're going to stop this cycle of permanent emergency. It feels like in the Sahel, Somalia, parts of northern Nigeria, the Chad Basin, it's like a permanent emergency now because of all of these factors of conflict, environmental degradation, poverty coming together again and again, as well as poor governance. Well, uh, uh, thank you for laying that out and, and for saying I'm, I'm right when I'm quoting from a document from your organization. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for your testimony. Thank you, Senator. <laughs> this concludes our second panel. I, I want to thank you, Mr. Forsyth, Mr. Beasley, uh, for your willingness uh, to share your expertise with us here today. We'll now take just a few minutes uh, to allow the members of the third panel to take their places at the table. We're on schedule, I think. <laughs> Roughly. Thank you.
Well, I welcome uh, the panelists uh, for our panel number three. Um, I'll say from the outset uh, that uh, Mr. Merkley has a hard stop at half past the hour, and I accept full responsibility uh, if, if this uh, panel runs a bit longer than that. Uh, we've just been able to elicit such interesting testimony from our other two panels, so thank them again. Well, I, I welcome all of you and uh, uh, would like to uh, just introduce you briefly. Dr. Dominic Stillhart, the Director of Operations for the International Committee of the Red Cross. Dr. Deep Mala Mala, have I said it correctly? South Sudan Director for Mercy Corps, and the Honorable Eric Schwartz, President of Refugees International. As with the others, uh, your full written statements will be included in the record, and I welcome each of you to summarize your written statement in about five minutes. Uh, let's go in the order that I announced you. Mr. Stillhart. Mr. Chairman, Senator Young, Ranking Member, Senator Merkley, first of all, thank you very much for inviting us back to Capitol Hill after we have already testified on the 22nd of March, the full committee. Um, um, I will base my uh, testimony very much on, uh, from the ground up. We have people in all these four contexts working on the front lines of these uh, famines, and I have also had the opportunity in the past few weeks to visit Yemen and uh, Somalia, and I will draw from this experience. First, my first message today is one of thanks. Uh, your leadership, the leadership of this committee, uh, as well as the U.S. government and the American people, has, uh, has saved hundreds of thousands of lives and has helped us to address the crisis, which is, as many of my predecessors said here, one of the worst uh, since the Second World War, uh, and has probably taken off the worst of the famine, um, and this is thanks to your leadership, and we really are grateful for this. My second message is keep it up. Keep it up, because we are not out of the woods. Um, progress is uh, uneven. Uh, we have probably seen uh, significant uh, uh, progress in Somalia. We are getting on the right side of things, uh, although the situation remains uh, critical. Uh, the situation in South Sudan remains extremely uh, critical. We have seen new rounds of violence that have displaced tens of thousands of people um, uh, in, in this country. And what we've seen in uh, South Sudan, and this is really important, with the displacement of people uh, into Uganda as well as in, into Ethiopia, once again we see these crises are not contained in the country that are affected by conflict. These are regional crises, uh, and therefore uh, they need regional solutions. Uh, uh, they cannot just be resolved within one single country. Um, Northern Nigeria, we have uh, significantly stepped up as a humanitarian community, but we also see new needs as more areas become accessible and therefore more emergency assistance is going to be required. The one context that I'm really extremely worried about is Yemen. Uh, 
I happened to be there just at the beginning of the cholera outbreak. I visited two hospitals in Sana, and I've never seen scenes like the ones that I saw in my 27 years with the International Committee of the Red Cross. Uh, hospitals completely overwhelmed by hundreds of families streaming into these hospitals within just 24 hours. These hospitals were totally uh, uh, overwhelmed up to four patients in one single hospital bed, patients under uh, hospital beds, others in the garden of the, in the, in the courtyards of the, of the hospital with IV drips hanging from, for, from trees. Unbelievable scenes, and by now we have heard 350,000 people affected by cholera, 1, nearly 1,800 people died, and this is all the direct, uh, uh, this, this is the direct result of brutal conflict that has affected this country for the past more than two years. Uh, David Beasley was uh, talking about uh, the Sustainable Development Goals 2030. Looking at health indicators in Yemen, they look more than 1830 than uh, 2030 today. My third message is uh, it's not just about emergency aid, it's also about livelihoods. Um, in Somalia, 70% of livestock uh, has perished and it will take up to five years to restock and provide livelihoods for uh, the people that are living in rural Somalia. 60% of Somali people, they are depending on livestock. Uh, this will require multi-year uh, flexible funding over time and again, your leadership will be required on this uh, aspect. It's not just about humanitarian organizations, though. Uh, if I look at the situation in Nigeria, uh, in Nigeria, people are suffering from severe restrictions of movement, uh, which, provide, which, which deprives them from accessing livelihoods, from accessing their fields, from accessing markets. And here, again, uh, you and your people on the ground you can do something which is not just about access for humanitarian organizations, it is access for the very people that are living in villages today in Nigeria that are not allowed to move out of uh, very restricted camps and can therefore not plant, cannot access markets. And we are just going to plant the seeds for the next round of marginalization and exclusion in Nigeria. And this is something that you can also address uh, with the Nigerian government on, uh, on the ground in uh, Nigeria. Um, my last message um, is, and this is the one that I'm really most concerned with, it's um, about the behavior of the warring parties. Um, the behavior of the warring parties, including uh, some of those that you are partnering with. Uh, all my predecessors has ta have talked about all the atrocities that we've seen. I will not repeat them. Um, what is important is that the failure to respect international humanitarian law today is a major cause of human suffering. And during our last testimony, we asked you for a diplomatic search. We continue to ask for a diplomatic search. U.S. leadership is important and will remain important when it comes to conflict resolution. Your leadership, however, 
is also important right now because you can make a difference right now in influencing the behavior of the warring parties which need to change. Uh, and here you have leverage, especially with your partners, and we are telling you there should be no support without compliance to international humanitarian law. Thank you. Be assured I, I will pick up on, on uh, that topic uh, when question time comes. Dr. Mala. Your summary testimony, please. Good afternoon, Chairman Young and Ranking Member Merkley, for this important and timely hearing. I'm honored to testify to this subcommittee that has fought so hard for additional funding to prevent famine, saving lives, and finding diplomatic solutions. Mercigo is a leading global organization specializing in humanitarian development and peace-building programs, working in over 40 countries, including South Sudan, Somalia, Nigeria, and Yemen. So Mercigo has joined forces with seven other leading U.S.-based NGOs to form a global emergency response coalition, the first of its kind U.S. humanitarian alliance. It is a two-week campaign targeting the American public from July 17th to 28th to raise awareness and funds to respond to the massive hunger crisis. As we've heard throughout, these massive humanitarian crises in these four countries will have far-reaching impacts on the security in Africa and the Middle East. Although Mercy Corps is actively responding to famine in all four threatened countries, I'm going to keep my oral brief testimony focused on the context I'm most familiar with, South Sudan. After decades of conflict, South Sudan experienced a brief moment of stability post the independence in 2011, before conflict broke out once again in December 2013. Since then, tens of thousands of South Sudanese have been killed, and four million had to flee their homes, including nearly two million refugees in neighboring countries. People flee with what? Almost nothing, maybe most of their children. We are deeply concerned about the pace at which the conditions are deteriorating. Currently, six million people don't know where their next meal is coming from. That is half of the country. Greatest ever recorded for South Sudan. 1.7 million are on the brink of starvation and 45% still experience famine. We've met women who train their kids to eat alternate days. We've met women and families who walk for days, sometimes weeks, to get food aid. And there's no shadow of doubt the famine condition in South Sudan or near famine condition is a direct result of the conflict. In South Sudan, we are working to quickly deliver life-saving assistance and also working on solutions to address the heart of the problem, which is by interventions like training farmers, psychological and social support to children, income generation, cash assistance, and revitaling, revital, revitalizing local markets. Our teams live in tents in deep field locations, walk through swamp for days to reach with aid. Since the declaration of the famine, we have scaled up our response in the countries, in the counties with high famine risk in order not to miss this last chance to save lives. Yet, we are only barely scratching the surface because often our efforts to save lives are impeded. Since December 2013, 84 aid workers have been killed, mostly on duty. NGO compounds have been looted, staff members assaulted and robbed, vehicles ambushed. Unless the guns fall silent, the humanitarian situation will only deteriorate. In addition, conflict has made it impossible for farmers to tend their fields. Militia have been accused of destroying crops and vital water sources, looting and burning homes and villages. A 23-year-old woman once, when I asked her where her home is, she told me, which home? Since last two years, all I remember is running and crying. 
I've met a woman who walked through the swamps for four and a half days with a baby on her back. She was hungry, malnourished. After four and a half days, she decided to let her baby go. Tackling complex crises and hunger ultimately means we need to address the root causes, and this has to happen now. And we cannot wait for humanitarian crisis to end. To me, this work must be humanitarian plus. More investments in addition to build social cohesion and livelihoods. Let me stress that we can address food security crisis if we act urgently, especially when we see the first signs. Such resilience program is, programming is extremely cost-effective. A study estimates that every $1 invested in resilience will result in almost $3 in reduced humanitarian spending. While the immediate priority has to be saving lives, building resilience cannot wait any longer. We urge that the Congress consider providing urgently needed assistance and remove obstacles to humanitarian access, invest in building resilience, and address the root causes of conflict and violence. Looking down the road towards FY2018, Congress should consider a, fully funding the international affairs account at no less than 60 billion, and within that, fully fund humanitarian and development accounts. Finally, why Mercy Corps stays committed to working in these environments? We cannot say that our programs will not be interrupted. Perhaps they would be. But should this mean that we give up on rebuilding communities? No. It means we adapt. It means the donors become flexible and understand that when there is an uptick in violence, we shift from recovery to urgent relief, and then when we can, back again. Globally, we implement programs with such nimbleness, but it can only happen with trust and commitment from donors. Chairman Young and Ranking Member Merkley, for each smile which we are able to bring on the faces in South Sudan, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for your time and attention. I look forward to responding to your questions. Thank you, Dr. Mala. Uh, Mr. Schwartz. Uh, thank you, Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, and members of this subcommittee uh, for holding this important hearing. I've had the honor to be involved in efforts to assist vulnerable communities for over three decades. I don't think I've ever been more concerned about the international humanitarian challenges confronting the United States and the world. And especially in light of recent budget proposals, I'm frankly uncertain about the willingness of our government to continue to maintain the mantle of global leadership on these issues. Of course, my, my concerns are mitigated by the important, critically important actions of members of this committee, the Congress, and each of you. Um, stalwart supporters of assistance to vulnerable communities around the world, including women and girls. Nonetheless, the cuts in humanitarian funding proposed uh, for the fiscal year 2018 budget would severely compromise U.S. capacity to address food security risks, and as importantly, are already sending a dangerous signal globally. My only hope is that in negotiations on funding, members avoid splitting the difference between the administration's proposal and what expanding needs really require. A look at the status of funding appeals for the situations we're considering today reveal the importance of this issue. The 2017 response plans for Somalia, Nigeria, South Sudan, and Yemen are funded respectively at 38%, 41%, 52%, and 40%. Now, while my written testimony addresses the dimensions of the food security challenge, 
I want to use my time to emphasize something that thankfully has already been referenced, that food security is primarily a challenge related to governance. Where there is an absence of repression and conflict, there is also an absence of famine. It is the characteristics of persecution and conflict that create these risks, destruction of crops, the need to flee land, and restrictions on access to information about populations in need, restrictions on freedom of movement, and restrictions on humanitarian access for those who are providing aid. So what's the lesson from this observation, which has been repeated by other witnesses? Um, It is that investments in prevention are key to improving governance and preventing food insecurity, preventive diplomacy, peacekeeping, humanitarian assistance, and longer-term development and resilience building, all of which are threatened by the administration's budget proposal. But it also means something else. It means that the United States must have strong political leadership. Um, there must be globally political, strong political leadership from powerful and respected countries like ours. In South Sudan, it means appointing a special envoy, uh, an empowered special envoy for South Sudan and Sudan. If you have to choose only a small number of crises worthy of the kind of attention that a special envoy can provide, this is certainly one of them. In Somalia, where our organization, Refugees International, just had a team in country, it means supporting the political developments underway and encouraging support for Somalia from within the region. For example, it means ensuring that we avoid anything less than safe, voluntary, and informed returns of Somalis from Kenya. In Yemen, it means that the United States must be taking strong measures to press the Saudis to respect international humanitarian law. U.S. influence with the Saudis is overwhelming, but that is meaningless if the United States does not use it to address what is probably the most dire situation we're considering today, with some 7 million people of Yemen on the verge of famine. And in Nigeria, it means supporting the development of responsive and responsible government and better coordination between international agencies, state authorities, and federal authorities. It also means encouraging Nigerian officials to provide unfettered access for international humanitarian agencies. So, the United States must deal with politics and root causes and exercise a degree of leadership that has been lacking uh, to address governance and conflict issues and therefore address the risks of famine. And at the same time, we must respond to immediate threats of food shortages with generous provision of resources. Meeting both challenges keeps faith with our values and our history and offers a brighter future for millions of people around the world. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Mr. Stillhart, I promised you that uh, I would pick up on the theme of compliance with international humanitarian law, something you spoke to in, in uh, your opening remarks. Uh, so uh, my first round of questions will uh, focus exclusively on that uh, and on you uh, and give you an opportunity to uh, offer your thoughts, sir. Uh, Mr. Stillhart, what is the Red Cross's role with respect to customary international humanitarian law? 
The International Committee of the Red Cross uh, has received a mandate from the international community to promote international humanitarian law, and we are also the guardian of this particular uh, body of law. And uh, uh, the, the custom international humanitarian law study comes out of the ICRC. And you no doubt uh, know, even if you were not present earlier, uh, what Rule 55 states is something I invoked earlier. Uh, the parties to a conflict must allow and facilitate rapid and unimpeded passage of humanitarian relief for civilians in need, uh, which is impartial in character and conducted without any adverse distinction subject to their right of control. When this rule, Rule 55, uses the word impartial, what is meant by that? And specifically, does, does this word impartial mean that it would be a violation of humanitarian law for a warring party to impede humanitarian assistance solely because that aid is going into a port or a region controlled by their enemies? Senator, impartial ex essentially means uh, to provide aid based on needs and not based on uh, political, uh, ethnic, uh, religious, uh, or party affiliation. That is what the, the word impartial means. Now, with regards to Rule uh, 55, Rule 55 actually draws from two important IHL um, rules, one uh, that, that regulate uh, humanitarian uh, relief, one is that humanitarian activities can be undertaken by impartial humanitarian organizations subject to the consent of the parties to the conflict concerned. And the other one is that once that these humanitarian activities have been agreed to, the parties to the conflict must allow and facilitate the rapid and unimpeded passage of release, relief schemes. What I can tell you is that this rule applies in the context of uh, Yemen, and all parties are bound by customary rule 55, and it provides, therefore, a strong legal basis for the safe and rapid and unimpeded passage of uh, relief goods into, uh, into, into the country. So you mentioned Yemen. Uh, do you believe all warring parties in Yemen are allowing and facilitating the rapid, unimpeded, and impartial passage of humanitarian relief. We are facing significant, uh, significant challenges. Uh, some of them have been mentioned before with regards to uh, the port of Hodeida, but the challenges go further than the port of Hodeida. It is also challenging today to transport uh, relief across uh, the country once the goods are inside. And I would also like to draw your attention to the fact that there is an effective air blockade yes. on uh, Sana'a um, where only uh, uh, the UN, MSF and ICRC uh, are allowed to fly in. There is zero commercial flight going into uh, Sana'a, the capital, which amounts to an effective uh, air blockade. Has the Red Cross expressed private concerns to the warring parties in Yemen about their respect for humanitarian law, including allowing and facilitating rapid, unimpeded passage of humanitarian relief for civilians in need? Yes. And uh, what sort of response, uh, if, if you're willing to share, have you received uh, in response to expression of those concerns? Well, normally this, is, uh, this takes place within the framework of our confidential dialogue. What okay. I can tell you, uh, Senator, is uh, 
that we have addressed these issues not only in Yemen uh, with, uh, uh, with the different parties in Yemen, we've addressed them with all states that are directly involved in the conflict in Yemen, including with uh, Saudi Arabia in Riyadh. Okay. Is it fair to say that the expression of private concerns has not addressed the violation of international humanitarian law? Excuse me? Is, is it fair to indicate that your private expressions of concerns have not addressed the violations of international humanitarian law? Is, has not led to a solution? All, <laughs> all, all our interventions are based, of course, right. on, on international humanitarian law. But so far, uh, we continue to see challenges with regards to uh, unimpeded access uh, and passage of humanitarian aid in Yemen. Well, I know you need to continue to operate in these regions. This is why you have these private and confidential conversations. So I, I certainly won't ask you to publicly condemn uh, warring parties in, in Yemen. However, I'll, I'll just reveal that I believe, based on today's testimony from earlier panels, some of the things I've, I've heard here today, and my consultation with experts in the field, that a case can definitely be made that the Saudis are, in fact, violating customary international humanitarian law rule 55. The Saudi-led coalition deliberately and precisely bombed the cranes, as we have seen in the port of Hodeida, that were used to offload humanitarian supplies. The Saudi-led coalition also bombed a World Food Program warehouse in Hodeida, despite the establishment of the UN Verification and Inspection Mechanism, or UNVIM, created to obviate the need for Saudi-led coalition inspections. The Saudi-led coalition continues to delay shipments going into Hodeida for days as vulnerable Yemenis cling to life, waiting for food and medicine. According to the UN, the Saudi-led coalition caused, on average, 5.5 additional days of delay in June for commercial vessels going into Yemen's Red Sea ports. This statistic excludes weekends, public holidays, and inspection time, to be precise. In January, when the World Food Program tried to deliver the four USAID, that is, U.S. taxpayer-funded cranes, to Hodeida to offload humanitarian supplies to replace the capacity destroyed by the Saudi-led coalition, the Saudis would not permit the replacement cranes to be delivered, literally forcing the vessel carrying the cranes to turn around. The Saudi-led coalition has diverted on several occasions vessels to ports they or their allies control, more concerned about who controls the port than which Yemenis uh, uh, most need the aid. And as we have discussed, on June 27, the World Food Program asked the Saudis again for permission to deliver the four cranes. As Dr. Mala writes in her prepared statement, the situation in Yemen is now so dire that a child dies every 10 minutes of a preventable disease. Yet three weeks have, el have elapsed since the June 27 letter, and the Saudis have not granted the approval to the World Food Program. In those three weeks, if that statistic is correct, as we have waited for the Saudi response, 3,024 children have died in Yemen of preventable diseases. All the while, the Saudi government has delayed and obfuscated floating red herrings related to the large-scale theft of humanitarian aid at Hodeida and the supposed lack of safety at the port that precludes the delivery of the cranes. The Department of State, USAID, the World Food Program, multiple NGOs on the ground in Yemen have repeatedly said these Saudi assertions are false. 
I believe those Saudi arguments have today yet again been thoroughly and publicly discredited. So I think we're seeing a disturbing pattern of behavior from the Saudi-led coalition. Just one U.S. senator with a strong opinion based on months of studying the facts at some level of detail. If the Saudis want to make clear their compliance with the international humanitarian laws, among other steps, they should grant approval to the World Food Program to deliver the cranes to Hodeidah, stop imposing delays on shipments into Hodeidah, and stop restricting the movement of journalists, humanitarian workers, and UN officials in Yemen. Mr. Stillhart, your question. You indicated the U.S. has leverage to affect change. Mr. Schwartz said the U.S. influence with Saudi Arabia is overwhelming. How can the U.S. affect change and incentivize compliance with international humanitarian law? I'm going to ask you to explain your assertion about the U.S. having leverage in this area, and then I will uh, recognize Mr. Merkley if time permits. I have gone over. I apologize, sir. Mr. Stillhart. Thank you, Senator. Um, as I said in my opening remarks, the U.S. is working with a number of partners in the region, uh, providing support to partners, and this support definitely offers opportunities for influence. And we have recently uh, submitted a letter uh, signed by our president to all states that are either directly or indirectly involved in the various conflicts in the Middle East. This is not only in Yemen, this includes Syria and uh, Iraq, uh, to seize the opportunities that supporting partners uh, offers. And uh, our uh, request is really that there should be no support, there should be no support without compliance of the partners that you are working with. And this is, the, this is the area where we believe there is influence, not only uh, by the United States, but by all states that are either directly or indirectly supporting partners in that region and elsewhere, by the way. Thank you. Mr. Merkley. Thank you, Mr. Stillhart. You mentioned a diplomatic surge. And you've elaborated some on that. Do you believe it would make a difference if President Trump was to directly connect with King Salman of Saudi Arabia in terms of addressing the situation in Yemen? I believe that U.S. leadership, uh, in whatever shape or form it comes, is key and can make a difference, yes. And would it make sense for the United States at the highest levels of the executive branch to convene a, if you will, an urgent council or meeting of, of leaders to greatly amplify and accelerate the response to the four famines? I think uh, uh, anything that you can do um, not only in terms of responding directly to the, to the famine in providing uh, more funds, which is extremely important and will remain important, 
But uh, as I said before, I strongly believe, and we and the ICRC strongly believe that uh, states, especially those who are directly or indirectly involved and supporting partners, uh, can exercise their leverage over uh, the, the warring parties on the ground. So if uh, this meeting is not just about uh, mobilizing uh, more funds that are, as, as I said, extremely necessary, but also about influencing warring parties' behaviors, I would really welcome that. Oh, th uh, thank you for that elaboration. And, and Dr. Mala, you mentioned in 2011 there was a brief period of stability. What, what ended that stability, and, and is there a way to reclaim it? After independence in July of 2011, there was a brief period of stability, and uh, we understand that in December 2013, there were tensions within the ruling government, and it initially started as a brutal power struggle between the president and the vice president. Um, and actually, the fighting started in Juba on 13th of December in 2013, and it took an ethnic dimension and spread to all parts of the country. And since 2014, 15, 16, uh, we've seen it deteriorating. There was um, relatively less violence, let's say, in some periods of the year 2015. But then again, after the December 2013 fight, the July 2016 violent clashes again totally amplified the violence and it spread almost to all parts of the country. Under, underneath or, or as a foundation to the, the struggle between the president and the vice president, was this an, an issue of who would carry the most weight or were there tribal differences or other fundamental differences uh, that the president and vice president represented? So what we understand from being on the ground is initially it was about power because both of them were the, were the same party fighting with Sudan to gain independence. So they were together till 2011 or 12. So it was a, about power as we understand, but it took an ethnic dimension very quickly because they are from different tribes. You testified that 84 humanitarian workers have been killed since 2013. Are some of these Mercy Corps workers? I mean, fortunately, as yet, we have not had any Mercy Corps staff member killed. We have had examples of harassment, my team members being on gunpoint, and some of them even being abducted. Uh, but many of my peer agencies have suffered. Has it made it extremely difficult for Mercy Corps and other organizations to recruit humanitarian workers because of this record of um, casualties? It is very difficult to recruit as well as very difficult to retain and especially recruiting female um, staff members uh, who are willing to come and work in South Sudan from other countries is extremely difficult. Were most of these 84 workers from South Sudan or were they workers from other countries? Over 90% are South Sudanese. Okay. In this power struggle that became a tribal conflict, is there a way to put the pieces back together? And if so, how? 
there are ways to put it together and it will need a huge effort which has to be a combination of life-saving efforts as of now because if Mercy Corps and other agencies stop today, people are going to die. Um, there has, I believe that there are ways in which the regional pressure can uh, somehow result into the South Sudan leaders taking peace more seriously. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Schwartz, you mentioned uh, the need for a special envoy for South Sudan. Uh, in terms of diplomatic offensive, uh, diplomatic surge, if you will, to try to address some of these conditions, are there other key posts that need to be be filled or other key actions? You heard me ask the question about the, the president's team uh, attempting to uh, both influence Saudi Arabia uh, and, and help lead a, a, a Council of Nations to respond in a more vigorous manner. What role would this special envoy play and how does it fit into the other diplomatic pieces? Let me, let me make a, a, a preliminary point, which is that um, uh, US, deep U.S. involvement never guarantees success in these kinds of situations. But U.S. absence has traditionally guaranteed failure. And, um, and that's my concern here. On the specific question you asked, let's take South Sudan. Uh, we don't have a senior director uh, for African Affairs at the White House. We don't have an Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs at the State Department. We don't have a Special Envoy for Sudan and South Sudan. We have an EGAD uh, arrangement, which isn't really a negotiation arrangement, which isn't really going anywhere um, based in part on the fact that regional actors have very conflicting interests. I had a very interesting conversation uh, with Senator Young yesterday. Um, and he understandably questioned, you know, how many special envoys do we need? Now, my personal view is if there's a case for a special envoy, South Sudan and Sudan is a good one. <laughs> if, if you're taking the position that the numbers have to be smaller, I'd say this would rise to the top. But I think the more fundamental point is there's, not a, there's no apparent strategy coming from the administration on how to address this. There's no indication that this is an important political issue for the administration. And as long as that's the case, frankly, I think the prospects for a political solution um, are, are uh, negligible. They're not great even with U.S. engagement, but I think they're negligible without it. Now, on let me make a point about Yemen, which I think was sort of obvious, but I think it's important for us to state, which is um, there is no indication that the administration has raised the issues that Senator Young has talked about. There is no indication, and in fact, there is indication that the administration has not. I speak with some degree of, of confidence, and I think given what's going on in Yemen, no matter what this administration's perspective is on human rights policy, it's astonishing to me that it does not seem to have been the subject of any discussion with the Saudis. Perhaps I'm wrong. Perhaps the information we've been getting on this is inaccurate, but, but, but I don't believe it's been the subject of any discussion. Uh, you know, and, and that, to me, is baffling. If you were uh, advising our, our, our president's team, 
would you say, look, not only apply pressure to Saudi Arabia, but if it's an issue of escorting a ship with the cranes that, that Senator Young has been advocating for, we should, we should do so and, and get those cranes into place. Uh, of course, of course. And, but I think this problem could be solved with a phone call between the president uh, and the Saudi leadership, or even at a level much lo uh, lower than the president. This is a, this is a solvable problem, given the, the administration has, I think, with some merit, boasted about its relationship with the, with the Saudis. Um, the, the potential influence is overwhelming. And so I just have to say again, it's kind of baffling to me why um, you know, this is an easy win. Um, and it's so morally compelled that I just, I, I don't quite understand it. Security risks often flow with an influx of, of refugees. For example, Jordan has a huge refugee population from, from Syria. Uh, Uganda has a very large refugee population, now exceeding a million individuals uh, from uh, South Sudan. What kinds of stability issues should, is, is, that, is that creating that may cause further challenges? Um, I think the, um, uh, the, the refugee flight and, um, I mean, right now the, the level of numbers of displaced persons um, is not simply the largest number since World War II. <laughs> it is the largest number in recorded history. And the potential uh, implications for uh, um, in instability um, are significant and substantial. Thankfully, governments like Uganda and others um, have begun conversations about making the lives for refugees in these places more livable. And there's a very valuable and important conversation going on in the international community about education for refugees, about access to employment. So there's no, it's, not, it's not completely bleak, but if the numbers continue in, at, at the rate they have, then, um, then, then these problems are, are gonna be insurmountable. So efforts to address root causes are absolutely critical. Uh, I have a final yes-no question for each of you, and then I'm going to uh, dash out of here, and I apologize about that. There is a proposal to move the State Department Bureau of Populations, Refugees, and Migration to the Department of Homeland Security. Good idea, bad idea, good idea, yes or no, each of, each of you, uh, if you could, with, with just one sentence or one word. Mr. Schwartz? Uh, bad idea. Dr. Mala? Not suited to the current times. What was that? Not suited to the current times. Not suited to the current times. Thank you. Mr. Stillhart? Well, I think it is difficult today to separate uh, questions of migration and uh, resettlement from the conflicts that are taking place because it's the conflicts that are actually creating displacement, uh, m migration and refugees, and therefore uh, it seems to me uh, that... PRM is better uh, left at uh, state. I appreciate that in your careers you're all every day getting up and working to make the world a better place and thank you for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. Well, blessedly for some of you, uh, this, uh, this panel, this hearing is coming to a close. Um, each of you have, have provided constructive, insightful uh, testimony uh, and more importantly, recommendations regarding steps that 
uh, that uh, this committee should be should take in the future uh, in each of these countries. Before we conclude, in addition to the issues in Yemen that uh, I've raised, I'm interested in hearing from each of you the most important suggestion you have for any of the three other four famine countries where Congress should focus. Uh, aside from recommendations you might have already uh, made to uh, us here today, in Nigeria, Somalia, or South Sudan, can each of you suggest one area of focus where you believe congressional attention or action can yield the most positive results? I'll allow any of you to begin. Mr. Stohar. Thank you, Senator. I'd like to come back to the situation in uh, Nigeria, in the northeast of Nigeria. Uh, I've visited the region several times, and uh, it is extremely important not just to think about and uh, push for humanitarian access for humanitarian organizations, but it's about livelihoods for people and freedom of movement for people so that they can rebuild their livelihoods. And uh, for now, it is my assessment that the cursor in Nigeria between what are legitimate security concerns of the government, they are entirely legitimate uh, given uh, what is happening uh, in the northeast of this country. The cursor between these legitimate security concerns and opportunities to rebuild livelihoods for people is not in the right place. And the cursor needs to shift further towards uh, provide, creating a more conducive environment for livelihoods, um, uh, because otherwise what is going to happen in the northeast of Nigeria, which has uh, regional consequences, we are just going to see a new round of uh, exclusion and marginalization uh, of the people in this region, which is the very basis for the conflict that has been raging in this region for eight years. Thank you. Uh, my staff and I will look forward to following up with you uh, about this matter. Uh, it appears Mr. Schwartz is prepared to offer a recommendation uh, based on the eye contact. Uh, is that correct, sir? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, and um, I, 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 the, the, the tagline here is human capital, okay? And it's that, you know, there, the, and the, the wonkish term is that, you know, we've got this comprehensive refugee response framework. But what it's about is, uh, which the international, the UNHCR, in the context of these, uh, these, these summits last September, pulled together on refugees. But what it's about is it recognizes the reality that with more than 22 million refugees outside their country's origin, many, if not most of whom, aren't going back quickly, we have to get out of the mindset that these are very, very temporary situations. And governments like Uganda um, have taken seriously the charge that they need to think about, and the World Bank is involved in this, education, um, uh, employment, the development of human capital for these people who are outside their, their countries of origin. And it's a, very, it's a very promising effort, but it's underfunded, right? So um, UN, uh, Uganda is hosting over a million refugees, nearly a million South Sudanese. We're not raising enough money to support that effort, so to, a to ask them to, you know, to be in the lead in this effort to develop human capital becomes very challenging. So I think an, an initiative from the Congress to support this effort, this comprehensive refugee response framework, human capital, 
would be extremely valuable. I look forward to working with you to learn more about this challenge and, and uh, perhaps review the evidence uh, to ensure that that investment uh, is, is really uh, going to improve the circumstances of, of those who need it. Dr. Mala. My first of the two recommendations would be consistent, safe, secure, and swift humanitarian access. Because if we talk about South Sudan, Nigeria, and Somalia, oftentimes the case is that the people who are most vulnerable, they are the most difficult to access. And when we talk about humanitarian access, I also want to bring your attention to the ability of people to be access the services, not only aid workers being able to access them. And the second one is on addressing the root causes of violence and conflict. As discussed earlier this afternoon, the only reason for which people resort to arms or joint armed groups is not poverty always. Uh, studies and experience have shown, one study done recently by Mercy Corps also says it is a sense of being treated unjustly. And uh, so if we invest early on and work on community level social cohesion and livelihoods in addition to humanitarian and life-saving services, rather than waiting for emergency or catastrophe to be declared. It will save money, it will be cost-effective, and probably less people, and let me say less humanitarians, will be killed. Thank you, Doctor. Uh, thank you again all uh, for your compelling uh, and thoughtful testimony. My hope is that this hearing will build some momentum and result in some tangible additional steps being taken on the back end to alleviate the horrible suffering in each of these four countries. For the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, including for members uh, to submit questions for the record. Thank you again to each of you, and this hearing is adjourned.